Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Welcome back to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this episode, which is the last one of the season, Jake and I thought it would be quite interesting to share with you some of the details of things that we've been working on in the last few weeks. And I know Jake's been working with a technology that I sort of have absolutely no experience with. And I've been working with something that uh, Jake is is very, or less familiar with, I should say. So we thought it might, might make for an interesting um, discussion. But before we get into that, I just wanted to do a little bit of follow-up on the last episode with Greg and where we talked about podcasting. With the post on the site when the episode went out, Ray actually went back to the entire raywenderlick.com team and asked people who had appeared on podcast episodes, not just ours, but any podcast, to let him have the details and has put together this really exhaustive list of every appearance of every team member on podcasts. So if you like listening to podcasts, and you're interested to hear more from other members of the team, other than just Jake or I or guests that we've had on that are also in the team, then make sure to check that out. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And there's lots of familiar names on there. So uh, definitely give that a read. Yeah, there's like 40, 40 line items. Sometimes they're, sometimes it's the same person on more than one podcast. Like Ray's done four podcasts, it looks like. You, you won't run out of things to listen to <laughs> soon. <laughs> No, I think uh, definitely there'll be some good and interesting discussions to listen to. Uh, I'm a big fan of Roundabout FM and Tim Mitra's More Than Just Code. And there's quite a few episodes in there, both those podcasts. So definitely give those a listen. Okay, well, I mean, I guess we should probably start talking about the main topic of discussion for this episode, uh, what we've been working on lately. Yeah, so I know that you and I believe another one of Ray's employees, maybe Greg, have been working on a tool for us authors to write tutorials with. We've been using Word and we use Markup. And we use all these different things, but we've never really had a workflow that was good. Word Word for me personally is crashy on, on the Mac. And it's the stuff that highlights changes in the history stuff seems to slow it down to a crawl sometimes. So when I first heard you guys were going to build a tool for writing, I thought, oh, that's brilliant. That's exactly what we need. So is, am I right? Is that what Codex is? And, and what is it for? Yeah, so Codex is the name for a suite of tools, but it's all about publishing. And because we do a lot of publishing, um, tutorials for the site, and as well as books and books in different formats. So obviously we have print books and the PDF versions, and believe it or not, you know there are a lot of differences between the PDF and the print version. So you're right, it was Greg, um, Ray Tasters at the beginning of the year to produce a suite of tools. One, one tool for the authors to be able to write their chapters in Markdown, which is a markup format, but it's very popular and very easy to learn. So, so the tool that allows them to write it in Mark, in Markdown also generates a preview of exactly how it will look, both for print and screen, and you can flick between those in a little uh, desktop GUI that we've got. And then the tool, then there's a secondary tool for uh, Ray and internal Raysware people that can actually then take all the chapters that the different authors have written 
for a book and combine them into the, the final book. Again, both print and PDF electronic version. I mean, so that's basically what it is at a, at a high level. So just, I'm curious, like when you take the markdown, you then kind of interpret it. Do you have to interpret it in different ways for PDF versus print? Greg wrote a markdown parser. We then have a, an, an intermediate step, which like loads it all into memory into a format that we understand and uses a series of callbacks to say, you know, I've found a paragraph. I've found some, you know, some emphasis. I've found some double emphasis. I've found an image and then hands us all that information and then we can do whatever we want with it. The actual PDF rendering, the difference between the electronic PDF and the print is the way that it's laid out. Both are PDFs. It's just one PDF goes up on the site and people can download it and the other PDF goes off to the print shop and they generate the the physical book. But there's all sorts of differences between those two PDFs because of the way traditional physical printing works as opposed to you know just showing something on screen but in terms of writing out those pdfs we've dropped down to cortex which is like a really low level like c basically uh, framework that apple provide that allow you to do all sorts of wonderful and weird things with text you earlier you kind of indicated to me that you went down the road you got started on codex and then you were doing something wrong you had to regroup and start over to some degree was that related to cortex or what was the story there well it was it was two parts one was naivety of that framework and inexperience and the other was limitations of of cortex i don't know whether actually whether that's quite fair because i'm still using cortex now we've managed to get around it so maybe it was sort of 90 percent inexperience i mean what were some of the what were some of the problems that you were bumping into what what wasn't working cortex is is a text layout engine so, you know, at the highest level and its simplest use, you can just give it an attributed string. And that, that can contain an infinite number of paragraphs and all that, those different paragraphs can be formatted differently. And it will just output them into whatever. Like you, you, you draw them using, you know, core graphics. You give it a context. You set up some um, intermediate core text objects. You hand it the attributed string and away it goes. You can then also leverage that in PDFs. So Apple give you sort of a, an additional layer to core graphics to set up rendering to a PDF. And it's exactly the same as rendering to a normal graphics context, except it introduces the idea of pages. Um, but once you get around that, then you can use the exact same methods that you would use to draw into a graphics context. You can draw into a PDF context. So again, with core text, you can hand over a load of text to say, right, put this in this page. And what it will do is it will lay it out. And you, and there's lots of properties and, and things and knobs and levers you can pull and knobs you can turn to specify how it should be laid out on that page. But what it will do is then lay it out and then it will hand you back what it was unable to lay out. So then you can say, okay, begin, begin another page and then lay out what the remaining text. And, and you can just then keep iterating through that until you run out of text. And then basically you've got a group of pages and all your text is laid out exactly how you want it to be laid out. That's fine when all you're wanting to do is lay out text. But anybody that's ever bought one of our books will know that our books contain images, they contain code blocks, they contain um, call-out notes where we want to either give a bit of additional information or we want to you know, draw the reader's attention to something that's really important. And this kind of threw up a, a load of issues because... 
at first we thought Cortex was kind of fire and forget. You know, you set everything up, you give it some text, and, you know, you let it do its thing. And what we needed to do was to be able to stop it at a certain point and say, well, actually, you need to insert an image here. And then you have to leave enough room for that image to go in before they continue on with your next bit of text. Or, for instance, if you're doing a code block, our, all our code blocks have a light grey background and the text is actually inset differently to the rest of the text that surrounds it. So there were all these different issues that were throwing themselves up. And the we took this initial naive approach where we were kind of manipulating core text to leave spaces in a way that it wasn't really designed to do. And then we're going back and trying to sort of shoehorn in the images and the grey backgrounds for the code blocks and for the note blocks. And this just became a nightmare to manage um, because the other thing is once you set up this PDF graphics context, everything that you do is, is written immediately to file. Once you finish with a page, you can't then go back to that page and add something extra in, which again then presented a whole load of issues because we want to do things like number pages. Well, we can't number pages until we know how many pages we've got and where to start them from because another thing that we do with our books is let's say we've got 28 chapters. We don't just go from chapter one to chapter 28. We might break them up with sections. So that book might have three sections. We would then want to insert a page between each of those sections, introducing that section and have all the page numbers up front to be able to say, this is the chapter and it starts on this page. But again, you don't know what page a chapter is on until you've actually finished putting all the chapters together. So there are all these crazy uh, issues that don't really you don't really think about up front because a lot of them are like edge cases. I mean, some of the ones that I've just mentioned, they're probably a little bit more obvious, but there was all sorts of things that just threw themselves up and were like, we've gone down this road and I don't think... You know, we've, we've gone so far, but I think we're going to have to turn around because we're not going to be able to get what we want with this route. So I had to go right back to the start, blank slate, uh, come up with a separate and different approach. Uh, and the approach that we've got now is much better. And basically, um, I was looking at many other things that, that do something similar to what we want to do. And the one that influenced me the most was web design, HTML, and the way that HTML is rendered. And basically, we've we've copied something very, very similar, but on top of that, we've introduced the idea of you know fixed height and width pages, and and we we do it all in memory up front. Yeah, so you can hand core text a piece of text and you know all the attributes and a ideal size, and it will measure it and pass you back what the actual size is. And again, if it, there was any text it couldn't fit into that size, it will pass it back separately. So what we were able to do is build up this page model internally it's made up of a series of boxes so again like using the web design analogy then they're sort of equivalent to a div we handle each piece of text that the markdown parser passes us uh, independently now rather than what we were doing before we were passing the entire markdown document formatting it as we went and then handing that entire document off to cortex to render what i do now is we have this intermediate step where we set up a page and then each time the markdown renderer passes a paragraph, we format that individual paragraph. We hand it off to this internal page model, which calculates how big it is, um, stores it, works out where exactly on that page it should be drawn, stores it. And then we also have an internal sort of cursor model 
which belongs to a page. And each time you, you, I mean, you can move that cursor independently, but each time you add something to the page, it moves the cursor down by the, the right amount. And then when it gets so far, when it tries to fit something on the page, it, it can work out whether it will fit on that page or whether it needs to create a new page. But again, all this is done in memory. So we, we can have the entire book in memory and have never even touched the graphics context for the PDF, which means that we can manipulate that entire hierarchy. While it's in memory, we can insert pages, we can move pages around, we can go right back to the beginning and start putting page numbers in and all that kind of stuff. And we're doing all that before we've we've even touched, you know, any sort of disk on file. And that's sort of where we are at the minute. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the approach you described that you started with is the exact same thing that I would have done. Just start writing the text out and then just inserting blanks <laughs> and then go back in the second time and try and put everything back on top. It's interesting for me because whenever... Whenever you kind of work on a new kind of problem, you learn that there's like domain specific issues that come up that only people that have worked on that domain for a while kind of understand. If you've never encountered that domain, even if you've been programming for a really long time, you kind of come in needing to be aware. I think if you're smart, you you know, like this domain is going to have its own set of eccentricities and issues and problems that I don't necessarily am going to that I won't be able to anticipate off the top of my head. And it's always good to be able to either go to somebody that's done it before or tread lightly as you work just so that you know, like, okay, what am I going to learn that at the end of this process, I will know what I should have known when I started kind of thing. Yeah. So I've been, I've been working on a, a calendaring app and there's a whole host of things. I've never done that before. There's a whole host of issues come up that are just common to like, it makes sense when you hit it, you're like, Oh, of course there's this, you know, this complexity or this thing that I have to handle carefully. Uh, but going in, you don't necessarily anticipate it. So that's, that's interesting. My experience with CAPIs is like OpenGL, a little bit of core audio, a very little bit of core audio, enough to be afraid of it. Like core graphics, which core graphics is not so bad. My impression is that CAPIs are usually harder to work with. They have a lot of classes and stuff. And like in the case of core graphics is it has a lot of stuff that you never actually even use routinely, right? So how is the Cortex API? Is it difficult? Did it take you a while to get into? Like what's your, what's your kind of take on that? Well, I mean, I have quite a bit of experience with core graphics. It wasn't terribly difficult to, to move into that. One thing that did slow me down a lot was Swift because we've written this in Swift and I know there've been a lot of improvements in Swift 2.0 for interacting with the sort of legacy C APIs. But we've we started this before Swift 2.0, so we it's currently written in 1.2. Um and there's been all sorts of um issues with Swift C interoperability, which just wouldn't have been an issue where we're writing it in Objective C. Can you give us an example or two of what you're what you're bumping into? Some of the C APIs, you have to set up callbacks and then register those callbacks, and those callbacks should be like global functions in C. Yeah, and they have to okay. be in a specific. I know, I know where this is going, yeah. <laughs> and they have to be a specific um, sort of signature, method signature, and you can't do that directly in Swift. So what I had to do was import the Objective C runtime. What you can do is, if I was writing it in Objective C, you can actually register a block like an Objective-C block as a callback for C APIs, and it all works nicely together. So what I had to do was import the uh, Objective-C runtime and sort of create some Objective-C blocks on the fly and register them as these callbacks. But that's just like an incredibly obscure 
way to fix that problem. And, you know, it's not a solution I came up with. It's a solution that I arrived at after sort of several hours of crawling the internet to find out what other people have been doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was just one of many examples. Like a lot of the... <laughs> so uh, another sort of... This isn't quite related to Swift, but it's kind of just a crazy thing that I ended up having to deal with. A lot of the core text API expect or return instances of CF range, uh, but then everything else that you deal with, like a NS attribute string level or sort of higher uh, level fr- uh, APIs, frameworks, expect NS range. Now, I'm pretty sure in Objective-C, they are one and the same thing. But the way that they've been moved into Swift, like they're not interchangeable, they're not toll-free bridged or whatever that, that phrase is. So I ended up having to write extensions on uh, CF range and NS range, like the same method. So NS range now has a method called to CF range and uh, CF range has a method called NS range. And all it does is create, you know, it's still got a location and a length. Um, and it just creates an instance of the other one and, and passes those in. It's just crazy stuff like that where you're just banging your head against the wall uh, for a bit because like, you'd expect all this stuff to work and it just doesn't. For my first introduction to Cortex, I think was a, I think it was a Ray Wenderlich tutorial. I'm not sure. It's where I, I started. It, w- it was Marion Todorov. Okay. Was it a, like a magazine? That's right, yeah. yeah. Okay, I think that's probably what it was. That's obviously one application. Like what you're working on is another application. I guess my curiosity is, my understanding is that Cortex is used under the hood. So if you're using UI labels and UI text fields and whatnot, the system is using Cortex underneath that, is it not? From what I believe, yeah. Okay. So iOS has a higher level abstraction called TextKit. Okay. Uh, which kind of is powered by Cortex, but makes things a lot easier to work with. So that's that's kind of what I what I would have liked on the desktop, um, but there's so no I was equivalent. thinking there's even three levels then, right? You got your you've got your UI label, UI text field, UI text view, but then underneath that you can use uh, text kit. Yeah, and then if that doesn't do what you want, you'd use core text. Can you explain when you drop from one to the next to the next, like what your needs would need to look like? If um, so, we did quite a bit of text kit coverage in iOS seven by tutorials, which I worked on. Colin Eberhardt did some chapters in there that cover text kit, because I think that's when it was introduced, iOS 7. What it does is it allows you very easily to manipulate the underlying text storage of the kind of controls that you just mentioned, UI label, UI text field. All these controls come with a you know, a default text storage, which just takes the text and displays it on screen. But what you can do is you can take an instance of UI label and hand it your own custom text storage. And what that might, what one one use you might want to do is you might want to wrap text around an image um, and you can do that very easily using TextKit and a custom text storage because um, you can also, in the text storage, have attachments, which are images. So you can say, here's an image, here's some text. I want you to wrap that text around that image in this particular way. So, you know, like to give you a visual example, because you might not be able to to follow easily what I'm talking about. As somebody who uses Word, you know, when you paste an, an image into Word, you go into the format and you get, you get all those little icons and it shows like the image in the middle and the text going around or all the text is off to the left and the image on the right or the, Im- the image is on the right, but all the text is on the left. It, uh-huh. You can achieve that kind of thing um, and it makes it very easy 
you can do some of the stuff that we've been doing. So like one of the examples in iOS 7 that Colin covers is interpreting custom formatting. So like putting asterisks around words and then you can pass that and change the attributes on that string to change it to be bold and whatnot. So one of the chapters is a very um, basic markdown pass. I think he only does like emphasis and double emphasis. You can manipulate the fonts very easily. So again, another thing that you might want to do, if you want to go for that sort of oldie, ye oldie book uh, look, you know, where the very first character of a paragraph is like big and it's in and it's cursive. Do you know what I mean? I do. Yeah, yeah. like the like the Constitution of the United States kind of thing. Uh, I'm going to have to hold my hands up so I've that, never maybe seen it. Yeah, maybe <laughs> that's not such a good touch point for you. But yeah, usually when you have like a copy of the Constitution, it, it's like framed in somebody's house. The first, we the people, the double use humongous, and the first sentence is quite a bit bigger than the next anyway. That, yeah, so you, but you can achieve all that kind of stuff with TextKit. Um, core text is what you would drop down when you just want to get some text on screen. Um and, the, and it's either not input by a user, so you're not using a control like UI label or UI text field, or you want to do some advanced manipulation with that text, like we've been doing with Codex. You could probably achieve, I don't know, maybe 80, 85% of what we've done with Codex with TextKit, where TextKit available on desktop. But unfortunately, it's one of those frameworks that is siloed on, a, on one platform and isn't available on the other. Okay. I was going to ask, so why didn't you use TextKit? But that, that answers it. Okay. <laughs> so I think that's enough of me droning on about what I've been working on, Jake. I know you've been working on something interesting lately. Now's probably a good time to take a little break, talk for a minute about Audible. So today's episode of the Ray Wenderlich podcast is brought to you by audible.com. I'm a huge Audible fan. I've been a customer for over 10 years. I have over 200 titles in my library. And I've listened to everything from the entire... Game of Thrones series, which I love. That was awesome. To uh, books about how the brain works. Uh, there's a book called How We Decide by Jonah Lehrer that's awesome. Something uh, Books like Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Anytime you're doing something that you don't need to be fully engaged mentally, it's a great opportunity to be listening to a new book, to be learning something new. And Audible is one of the best things that ever happened to me. Uh, I've read way more books in the last 10 years than I did before that. And I've learned a ton through Audible, and I love it. I think it's great. You can go to raywenderlich.com slash audible, and you can sign up for a free trial month. Uh, so check it out. If you haven't done Audible before, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, so I've had a few different contract gigs come up lately. Um, one of those is uh, an opportunity to work on Unity. started with Cocos 2D when I first started learning iPhone programming, and I mostly learned that from RaySight. I got pretty good with it and I learned OpenGL and I learned, you know, I, I got pretty good with Cocos 2D and then SpriteKit came along and kind of made Cocos 2D not as interesting just because of the advantages of SpriteKit and kind of more being kind of inside the Apple family. I hear a lot of people say once SpriteKit was around, they felt like they could really understand SpriteKit and found Cocos 2D hard. But once you know both frameworks, they're actually the exact same. Like they're really similar when you kind of understand the architecture behind them. But anyway... I go to like some of the local gaming group. Um, there's like a independent gaming developer association group here in Salt Lake City that I go to sometimes and everybody uses Unity. And that has become true since Unity changed their pricing model. Unity used to be kind of expensive to get going with. It used to be a couple thousand dollars to get started with it. And now it's free. 
and then there's like a rev share. And then if you get up beyond a certain revenue model, then you got to give them more money. But it's like very affordable now for any you know amateur indie can afford to use Unity now. And so since they made that pricing structure change, Unity has just like taken over the independent gaming space. When you go to a game jam or whatever, everybody's using Unity. So Unity has been on my radar for a long time. I've wanted to learn it, but just haven't really been able to justify taking the time because I'm busy with contract work. And I'm like, well, if I'm learning Unity, I'm not making money. A gig came up. I've been learning Unity, and it's been it's been really interesting. How, like one of the things that's always got me with these all-in-one 3D game creator. To I don't know what the correct word is for the toolage is that it they they all seem to have moved away from having a tool to do the scripting with, a tool to do the the level building, you know, a tool to do the coding into this one mammoth jack-of-all-trades tool so you're kind of you're building as you're going along adding scripts in like i watched all the unity videos that brian's done on the site and the interface is overwhelming Uh, so how have you found that coming from somewhere where you know like traditionally you would have two separate tools and also be in two separate environments like the, the two never really cross yeah, so the initial my initial impression was kind of to be put off by Unity and I I had tried to learn it before and I watched videos. It's interesting Unity there seems to be way more way more videos to teach you Unity than there are like blog posts and I prefer blog posts because you can scan them much more quickly than you can scan a video. But anyway, there seems to be a lot more videos, but yeah, that's all about the interface and there's like a 100,000 options and it it's overwhelming for sure. But I actually went through, um, Chris did a 2D, isn't it? Chris did a 2D tutorial on, on Ray's site. He basically did zombie conga in Unity. Oh, yeah, Chris LaPolo. Chris LaPolo. Sorry, Chris. I, I know your name. I just couldn't <laughs> think of it. Um, and it was really good. It's like a five-part series, and he goes lots of lots of animated GIFs and stuff to show you how the interface works. And that was enough to kind of get me over the hump of just jumping in the deep end. You're like, I don't know even where to start. And I also got some help from some local people that work with Unity. Like when I would get stuck, I'd be like, how do I... It was dumb stuff. It was like, how do I parse JSON in Unity? If I want to pull a JSON file from the web and parse it and use that data as to build up some of my levels, how do I do that? And it was like the dumbest thing, the easiest thing I know how to do you know, in, in Xcode. Couldn't figure it out forever on Unity. <laughs> and partly it was because there was more than one way to do it. And I just was like, not sure, you know, which is the way, like what's the generally consensus accepted way to do this and some of the things i found was at least among the people i talked to there wasn't as strong of a sense of like there's one right way to do it and you should do it that way because you'll avoid these issues because i feel like as a cocoa programmer there's a, a strong sense of that when you hear people talk about solutions to problems there's usually an appropriate solution and then there's a bunch of kind of inferior solutions you want to get to the appropriate one so that you avoid kind of the long-term consequences you know yeah and i don't know if it's just because i'm still brand new and getting into it but i didn't get that same sensibility from people i talked to they were like well i would do it this way it works fine good enough i don't really care what the other solution Arc. But do you think that's to do with the audience size? Uh, yeah, so I do think it's partly because you've got Mac people in Unity, you've got Windows people in Unity. It's it just doesn't cohere the same way like the, the Coco community does. But I mean, well, I mean that that was kind of one one side of what I meant. But the other side was like the number of people using Unity to build content versus the number of people using Xcode and the iOS SDK. It's like the num the number of Unity probably pale in significance compared to the iOS developer number. Mm. So when a solution, yeah, you know, like so it, it's much quicker yeah. 
for a for a common solution to bubble to the top. Yeah, then that's a good point. Then it will be for unity because like and and often I mean like you say like you've got people working across different platforms. So then that's that much smaller number is then reduced even further if you're looking for something that's say Mac specific. Mhm. Um yeah yeah. No, that's I'm that would make sense that, that would also be part of it. So, I mean, can you give us an idea of some of the stuff that you've been working on in Unity? Then are you still yes. just finding your feet? No. So the project I'm working on is a series of... It's actually a nice project because they have a series of educational videos that they're already, they're already written in PHP and JavaScript. And they want to improve them and they want to be able to move them to different platforms like mobile and stuff. And so I told them, you know, I'm not a... I'm not a JavaScript guy, but if you want, I can I can do these in Unity, and then we'll have access to more than you know lots of different platforms. And they they like that idea, so they are just I mean they're all simple games, which is nice. So it's just like a series of text labels on us on the screen, and then you have to pick the ones that like they they read a sound to you, and then you have to find all the labels that match the sound. So it's kind of like reading for like kids that are having trouble learning to read, or like young kids that are learning to read. It's those that level of game. And mostly that's what it is. It's just like playing audio, little audio chunks and then clicking buttons. And I'm just going in and trying to uh, add like more animation and more particle effects and improve the sound effects and the graphics a little bit and, you know, do some 3D rotations and stuff just to kind of make it juice it up a little bit. So that's essentially my task. It's something that I could have done in no time at all in SpriteKit, right? Like I would know exactly what to do. There would be no open-ended problems where I'm like, I'm gonna have to figure this out. I would know exactly what to do, but because I'm doing it in Unity, kind of having to kind of convert my skills. And I have that tendency to slip into thinking, like structuring the problem the way I would structure it in Sprite Kit, and then kind of fighting against Unity structure until I figure out that's what I'm doing. And then kind of be like, oh, okay, I need to not think, I need to not think about how I would do this in code. How do I use the Unity editor to build this animation or whatever? For anyone that has been kind of considering going to Unity, I feel like my advice would be to do it. If you're if you're like me and you're used to SpriteKit or Cocoa Studio or some of these other engines that are primarily you primarily interface through programming. Um, I mean, there are editors, and you can see you can obviously see Apple moving that direction because they added a bunch of stuff in iOS nine for creating keyframe animations in SpriteKit, and they're you know they're upping the ante with the editor, making it more and more Unity like all the time. And including the whole GameKit thing, so the whole component architecture that GameKit introduces, Unity is component architecture all the way. And that's been one of the most interesting things is because I've heard of component architecture and I've read some blog posts about it, but I've never really grasped it. And and using Unity for like two days, it's you get it because everything in Unity is structured that way. Even though you're working with stuff through the editor, the way you add behaviors to something is to add a component that has that behavior built into that component. I don't know if that makes sense, but if you use that, if you use Unity, it'll make sense quickly. Yeah. No, so I mean, that's been really in, that's been enlightening because I I will when I write code now, if I have a SpriteKit project, I will I'll use that architecture now because it's clearly superior for making games. Well, I mean, this is one of the things I think we mentioned it briefly on one of the podcasts where we have Mike Daly on. My one and only ever venture into trying to make a game was using sprite kit and i got so far and was just so deep in trying to use the common patterns from app building to build a game that it just became this massive inconsistent mess but you know i was trying to use subclassing and inheritance and the delegate methods and 
you know, all that kind of stuff that, that you would use without even giving it a second thought in, you know, when you're building an app. That just it just doesn't work when you're trying to build a game. And, you know, Mike, I think and I think Matthias might have touched on it as well, uh, when we had him on talking about app architecture, that the the component way for games is is much more suited to that domain and, you know, the the generalized uh, sort of cocoa patterns that we use for app building is is far more specific to that domain than, than what you think it is until you branch out and you start looking at sort of the other domains such as making games. It is. It's wildly different. I for forever when I started with Coco and and my interest primarily was in games, I couldn't reconcile. I kept being told, you know, MVC, 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 and I was just like, I don't and then I go work on a game project and I'm like, it just doesn't make sense to me to try and shoehorn this this project into an MVC architecture. Um, and there are games that actually would would fit with an MVC architecture, but a lot like a platformer just for example is just isn't that's just not the right structure. So it's been interesting to learn architecture from not from code, right? Like just the way Unity is set up because mo- you mostly interact with your game through the editor. I mean, you can attach a script anywhere and the, and the script can do just about anything. For all of the major things that you'd think you'd want to do in a game, there already is a component that's configurable that you can add and con- and configure in the editor to do it. You know, 80% of what you're doing, you can just kind of plug. It's like playing with Legos. You just plug the pieces together and configure them. So you can see how you'd, you'd move much more quickly once you got used to all of what's available in Unity. Um, so I'm, a, I'm actually a big fan. I think the next time I start a game project, I'll, I'll do it in Unity. So can you, as a developer then, like if you, if you want some sort of behavior and there isn't a existing component that provides that behavior, can you crack open Xcode or some internal tool and build your own sort of plugin that provides that behavior? Yeah, the answer is yes. I don't know exactly all the ins and outs of that. I'm still kind of new enough that that's a that's an area I haven't done too much. But I did I did just stumble across a blog post explaining how to create a plugin wrapper around a, a, an Xcode chunk of code. I can't remember what it was trying. To, I think they just threw up a, an alert view or something. But the point was just like you can write this in Xcode. You have to do these things to it, and then you can import it into Unity as a plugin. And you can execute it from your C sharp Unity. You can use C sharp, or you can use Unity Script, which is just like a JavaScript like language. But my impression is that the vast majority of professionals use C sharp, so that's what I've been using. Um, so it's like this is how you call it from C sharp. So yes, the answer is yes. Okay, fantastic. So and there's a ton, there's this asset store, which is like you can build a plugin and sell it on the asset store. So if you're like, I want something that does, in fact. The other day I asked, we have a Unity group in our Slack, in the Ray Wenderlich Slack group. There's a Unity channel now. And I went in there and I was a couple of things. I was like, I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to chain animations and playing sound files and executing random chunks of code. I want to be able to chain those together like I would do in SpriteKit. Is there any plugin in Unity that allow me to do this this way? And uh, one of the guys on the Unity team immediately gave me a response. It's like, yeah, there's a ton of them. Here's the one that I would suggest using. So you know what I mean? It's like a lot of stuff you think, oh, I'm going to have to write this wrapper so that I can do this the way I want to do it. And it's like, nope, somebody's already thought of it and done it. Just like GitHub. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's not as big, but yeah. there's a ton on there. So oh, that's good. Uh, so I'm obviously conscious of, of time because uh, we have been talking for some time now. Before we just wrap things up, as somebody that's just gone into Unity, and sounds like they've embraced it. Like, what one piece of advice would you give anybody that like is contemplating it? 
I guess so my biggest challenge was just getting over the discomfort of being in a foreign place. If that makes sense. <laughs> no. Like being frustrated that I knew how to solve the problem in my own environment, but I was in an environment I didn't know. And my piece of advice would be just go just do a bunch of tutorials, like just power through. Just go in and just start playing around with the tool and it'll take a little time. And if you're under the gun, like I was a little under the gun because I'm getting, it was a contract gig. So I was getting paid and I was, I did fixed bid, which meant if it took me forever, I didn't make any more money. So I was feeling a little bit of stress for that, but it was mostly a matter of just letting go of that for me and just spending enough time playing with the tool until I kind of, it just kind of clicked. And I was like, okay, I, I don't know everything, but I know enough that if when I have a question, I know how to go get an answer for it. I guess, I don't know if that's great advice, but that's what I would have needed to have heard if if I had given myself past self-advice. <laughs> no, I mean, that that's definitely good advice, I think. One other thing I'm just going to cheekily tag on to the end of that is uh, Brian has done 18 uh, videos on Unity covering the basics, Unity 2D and Unity 3D on the site. So if Unity is something that whets your appetite, especially after hearing about Jake's adventures with it recently, then uh, definitely check out those videos. Brian is great in those videos as well. Uh, I've watched them, even though I haven't really done anything in Unity, I've watched those videos, and Brian's a great teacher, so definitely check out those videos. Um, so I think that's probably a good place to wrap things up, Jake. Uh, as I mentioned in, in, in the sort of intro, this is the last episode of season four. I uh, can't believe we've been going that long now. It doesn't seem that long. The first episode of season five will be out on the site on Wednesday, November the 4th. In the meantime, Jake and I and Ray will get together and review this season and discuss any changes. And that's when we will start looking through the feedback you've sent us on your iTunes reviews and seeing if there's anything we can pick out, things that we can change to, to try and improve the format going forward. Now is a really good opportunity, if you do have any feedback that you've been sat on, to send it in to podcast at raywendelick.com. Uh, Jake, for the last few weeks, it's been great chatting with you, as usual. Um, and I think this is, is where we'll sign off. So guys, do come back in November. Uh, make sure you do leave reviews on iTunes if you've enjoyed this season. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendelick.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.